Let's pray. Father, what people are there that has a God so near to them as the Lord our God is to us who comes and answers us whenever we call upon him? Lord, that promise you brought to me from Deuteronomy 4-7 in a very fresh way this past week, and I've been living on it each day until now. You come to those who need you. You come to the contrite in heart. You come to those who would fail without you, and that would be me right now in this moment if you don't come. I am banking on Deuteronomy 4-7 that you will be near to us right now. God, would you visit this congregation with your presence through the indwelling of your Holy Spirit? Would you have the freedom to convict us to bring sorrow over sin to us? to cast our eyes upon Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Would you come and give sight to spiritually blind this morning? Lord, we need your help. We believe in the preaching of your word, but it does fall flat without your help. So come and bring the gift of illumination. We anticipate that there may be hundreds of things you might do right now with this teaching. And so I, I give this to you. And I ask, Lord, that the sum total of this would be that you would be better known, that our church would be deeper and therefore healthier, especially relationally speaking. And I pray that out of that depth and out of that health would come breadth and growth. And that would be, we would be a church absolutely committed to all people within our sphere of influence coming to know Jesus Christ. To that end we pray, come near in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to begin this morning as I did two weeks ago uh, with reading through the instructions for elders from the Apostle Paul to both Timothy and Titus. If you'd like to follow along as I read, I'll be starting in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. That begins on page 992 in the Red Bibles. If you happen to have a Red Bible nearby, you can grab one of those. Page 992 in the Red Bibles. Then after reading 1 Timothy 3, 1 to 7, I'll go on to Titus 1, 5 to 9. And then we're going to throw in uh, 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. We're going to add that to our reading this week. Hear now the words of Holy Scripture. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an elder must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money, He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. 
Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. And Titus chapter 1, beginning in verse 5, says, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. Finally, in 1 Peter 5, beginning in verse 1. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. We began our series on eldership by asking a simple question, why elders? And that led us into a Interesting exploration in the Old Testament as we studied Exodus 18 and Numbers chapter 11. And we found out in those texts that pastoring God's people is a very weighty business. And it's too heavy for one shepherd to go it alone. We learned specifically from those two Old Testament passages that solo shepherding bottlenecks the ministry of the word of God to the flock but plural eldership multiplies it. It's a good thing for the flock. We also discovered that solo shepherding beats down shepherds who try to go it alone. We also learned that plural eldership shoulders the burden alongside solo shepherds. And the example was Moses and the elders of Israel there. This is where this all comes from. And then we turned to 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus 1, and we began to survey those moral character qualities that you heard me just read a minute ago. We began with some minimal criteria, like some pre-qualifications that a man ought to meet for even to be considered within the eldership. Like, for example, wanting the job in the first place. Paul mentions that in 1 Timothy 3.1. He says that you can't be a new convert, 1 Timothy 3.6. And that you've got to be able to teach, handle your Bible, show someone through the scriptures, be able to communicate sound doctrine. And then the most recent sermon we had on this topic, we actually kind of rolled up our sleeves and began to get into the actual character qualities themselves. We saw about a baker's dozen of them two weeks ago, 13 of them. Um, Both of what a man ought not to be, because Paul frames a lot of them negatively. He must not be this, he must not be that. So there's a, a negative enforcement And then there's a positive enforcement, what he ought to be. Uh, And you heard those as I read them. We come today to the last of the sermons in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 on the topic of of eldership. 
And since we've already considered the origins of the office of elder, we've already considered the character of elders, we now want to put this last piece of the puzzle into place this morning, and it's the relationships of elders. That is, how does an elder connect and associate and interact with other people? What is his family life like at home? What about relationships with folks here in our fellowship? What about an elder's contacts with unbelievers? Do these things matter? Paul thought they did. Some folks would say that relational concerns are unimportant. They're they're optional for men who are going to lead our fellowship or any other fellowship. And if that's the way you think, I want to urge you to think again. The quality of an elder's relationships with those in his home, with those in the local church, those with other Christians in other churches, and then even within the unbelieving communities around us, the quality of that is the barometer, Paul would suggest, for how faithful the man is going to be as an elder. It's a way, it's one of the best ways of assessing fitness for eldership. In fact, Paul spends half of his time when he talks about whether or not a man's qualified to pastor or shepherd a church discussing this issue of relationships as he treat other people. It's a big deal. You've probably heard a pastor say somewhere along the line, you know, ministry would be great if it weren't for the people, right? That's a miscalculation. That's seriously misguided. Those are the words of a very unhealthy leader. People are our business. 19th century steel tycoon Andrew Carnegie famously said, I'm not in the business of making steel. I'm in the business of making men. They make steel. And it's the reason why he was such a successful businessman in this country. That is precisely the calling of shepherd elders as well. Ephesians 4, 11, and 12 says that Christ gave the shepherds and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Not to do all the work of ministry, but to be supply side guys behind the lines, pushing the resources up to the front lines to the church who is in the work of ministry. People are our business. And if that's the case, then nothing probably would tell the story better whether or not someone's fit to be an elder of this church or any other church than by looking at the relationships that he has in his life. And while an elder will never be without his critics, it is essential that he be without reproach. Let's make sure we understand the difference. While an elder will never be without his critics, it is essential that he be without reproach. Another way of saying it is that while people may sling mud at an elder, none of it had better stick. For a leader to be without critics is both unlikely and undesirable, wouldn't you say? It's unlikely because elders are sinners. And they are the subject of criticism, sometimes because of their own sin. And the Bible allows for that. First Timothy 5, 17 and following talks about what to do if there's a charge made against an elder in a local church. So it's unlikely, but it's also undesirable because Jesus himself said it was undesirable to have no enemies. In Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount, Luke six twenty six, Jesus says, Woe to you when all people speak well of you. 
For so their fathers did to the false prophets. To be a person without critics is actually to be standing in a very unenviable position. Jesus wouldn't recommend it. Our critics can oftentimes be our greatest coaches. That's been my experience. So an elder's not above criticism, but Paul does demand that he be above reproach. He uses that phrase three times, doesn't he? We heard it three times in 1 Timothy 3 and, and Titus 1. 1 Timothy 3, 2, he says an overseer must be above reproach. That little Greek word translated must be speaks of necessity. This is not optional. An overseer must be above reproach. So what does that actually mean? Well, it doesn't mean without sin. 1 John 1.8 1 John 1.10 say, If we have no sin, we've deceived ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we say we've not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Maybe those are familiar words to you. They are to me. But what caught my attention in reading them recently this week is the amount of plural personal pronouns that John uses. He uses nine Plural personal pronouns in verses 8 and 10 there of 1 John 1. We sin, our sin. The apostle himself said he was a sinner. Apostles and then certainly by extension elders and pastors are sinners. That's the only kind you get to have. So whatever above reproach means, it doesn't mean without sin any more than it means without critics. So what does it mean? It means without scandal. It means that when your name is spoken, it cannot be associated with infamy in such a way that you hear the man's name and you think, yeah, but look what's going on at home. Or you hear a man's name suggested for eldership and you think, yeah, but have you thought about his relationship with people in this church? Or you suggest a man's name for eldership and you consider, yeah, but do but you know what the unbelieving community's position of uh, view on him is, generally speaking? So above reproach has to do with a man's reputation more than anything else. Reputations precede us, but they're not really within our control. They're in the hands of people who formed them. And so our families and our church and our unbelieving neighbors, those are the ones who observe us on a daily basis, and they are the ones who probably at the end of the day ought to say whether or not an elder is above reproach. And you notice that Paul extends these into the different relational spheres. And we're going to consider each one of these. An elder must be above reproach in his family relationships. That's number one. In his church relationships. That's number two. And then in his community relationships. And then we'll unfold each of those with a little bit more detail. But let's start in number one. An elder must be above reproach in his family relationships. 1 Timothy 3.2 verses 4 and 5, and also Titus 1, 6. If you think about it, there's no more critical web of relationships that we should consider when we're thinking about eldership than a man's family. Nothing more important. I want to show you why that's so key. Turn over to Titus 1, 6 for a moment. Titus 1, 6, and also verse 7. Notice again, very similar language to 1 Timothy 3, 2. If anyone is above reproach, Now drop your eyes down to verse 7 where scripture says, For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. That's the second time uh, that phrase is 
given to us in Titus 1. An overseer, an elder, is, among other things, God's steward. In the first century, a steward was a slave that was given the responsibility of his owner's home while the master was away, and his chief job was to care for the property and the household and all those in it, including the other servants. It's a weighty responsibility. Not every slave was a steward. And an elder is God's steward. So, I don't know, when you think about like organizational metaphors for the church, I hope family is really high on your list. As you think about what Mound Free Church is, it's not first a business or a nonprofit or a team or a platoon or anything like that, it is a family. To use the words of 1 Timothy 3.15, the church is the household of God. And so elders are called God's stewards in that household. Servants that are in charge of the home while the Lord Jesus is away, but he's coming back. And he wants his house found in order when he returns. And if elders are stewards of God's household, then the proving ground for stewardship is what household? Their own. An elder must be above reproach in his family relationship. So let's look at 1 Timothy 3, 2 now. An overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife. I do believe we can know what this means, but we do have to clear away from the text what it doesn't mean. So hang in there for a minute as I talk about what this is not. First of all, ironically, the husband of one wife does not mean that a man must be married to be considered for the eldership. That sounds funny, but that is true. One reason I know this is that Paul himself would fail the requirement. The man wasn't married. This would exclude the Lord Jesus from the eldership of our local church or any other. Now, neither of them served as local church elders, so we need to seek further evidence here. But those realities just shouldn't go unnoticed. We should trot those out there for a second. Single men are encouraged to serve the Lord in every possible way that one can serve him. Paul didn't exclude single men from eldership, I think, because he put such a high premium on singleness as a good and godly way to live, didn't he? Speaking of singleness, in 1 Corinthians 7, 7, Paul says, I wish that all were as I myself am. And he meant a bachelor. I wish, I wish you all could know how great this is to serve Christ. And he says, but each has his own gift. One has one gift, one has another. Mine happens to be singleness. Too bad you all don't have it. 1 Corinthians 7.32, he says, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. And the flip side of that is that the married man is anxious about, does anybody know? Worldly things. How to please his wife, which would explain the freedom that I have this morning. My wife and kids are at home right now. I feel unfettered. I feel less divided until I get home and I have responsibilities. And Paul felt like that would would affect how a man would serve Christ. And he's right. Same is true for women. 
So I can't bring myself to fathom that Paul was barring single men from eldership with this term, husband of one wife. More than likely, Paul's just assuming men will be married. And you know what? He's right. Most are. He also assumes that most have kids. And you know what? Most do. That's why he sets up the categories like he does. But statistically speaking, um, although many are married with kids, they do not have to be. Secondly, some have stressed that the word husband, uh, not so much the word husband in this phrase, but the word one, husband of one wife, as in one wife for his entire life, for example. And if that were the case, then he would here be seeking to exclude uh, widowers who had remarried or men who had been divorced and then remarried as well. The problem with this reading is that Paul permits marriage after the death of a spouse. In 1 Corinthians 7.39 and also in 1 Timothy 5.14, he encourages it. And as far as remarriage after divorce, boy, we, this was rough sledding a few years ago when we worked through the Sermon on the Mount, but I finally think I got straight on this. If adultery was the root of the divorce, the Lord Jesus himself permits remarriage on that same ground. Matthew 19, 9. Remarriage is permissible if the divorce was caused by adultery. Others have wondered, maybe Paul's just making a statement against polygamy here, right? Husband of one wife, not seven, if you please, right? Maybe, maybe. Polygamy did exist in the first century, a little bit in the broader Ephesian culture, but it was rare. It would be a little bit strange if he were warning the church against polygamy. Not impossible. So if you clear all those away, I think the most likely interpretation of this qualification comes out as we translate it as literally as possibly. The Greek underneath this phrase, the husband of one wife, is actually three little Greek words, miais gunaikos andra. And they literally mean one woman man. Those are your blanks there underneath point one. One woman, man. An elder, assuming he's married, though he does not have to be, must be a one woman man. What's that mean in the first century? Same exact thing it means today. A faithful husband. A man who loves his wife as Christ loves the church. A man who nourishes his wife, cherishes his wife, a man who is not harsh with his wife, a man who seeks to understand his wife, a man who sacrifices for and provides for and goes out of his way to honor his wife. I dogged Jerry Hall for years to become an elder in this church simply because of how he honored you, Mary. He honored you. A man who does not look at other women as he does his wife. That would be another aspect of this. A man who is as pure as the driven snow when it comes to matters of sexuality. That's what this means. So it does apply to single men. A one-woman man. Elders of Mount Free Church, whether single or married, is this you? Members of Mount Free Church, do you believe this to be true of the men who lead you as elders? That's the operative question. Secondly, an elder must be above reproach in his family relationships in this next way. He ought to be an effective shepherd of his children. An elder ought to be an effective shepherd of his children. Look with me at 1 Timothy 3, 
verses four and five. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? I hope you see this theme emerging again, right? Every family is a little church. Every husband, every father is the shepherd of that little congregation. And if he is to serve God's household as God's steward, then at least he's got to be an effective shepherd of his own children. That's how Paul's arguing here. The argument runs from lesser to greater. John Stott gets right to the point with his comment on these verses when he writes, the argument is straightforward. If he cannot look after his own family, he cannot be expected to look after God's. Don't saddle a man with that responsibility if it's not happening at home by God's grace. As the parent of a seven and a three-year-old, I want you to know how much I agree with that statement. I really do. In Matthew 25, Jesus states a principle where he says that he who is faithful over little will be faithful over what? Much. That's the principle. That's what Paul's talking about here. Now, in Titus 1.6, the translation in the ESV says for an elder that his children are believers. And I wish they hadn't done it that way. I praise God for the footnote in the ESV because I think they've opted for a lousy translation in verse 6. They didn't ask me when they were convening. But if you go to the footnote, or if you happen to be a King James person or a New King James person or even the Holman Christian Standard Bible person, you would see the translation, having faithful children. That's the right nuance here. The reason that's the way to translate this word is because of what Paul's seeking to guard against in verse 6. Plug this translation in and see if it makes any sense to you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are faithful and not open to the charge of debauchery and insubordination. What's the opposite of debauchery and insubordination or being wild and unruly? Well, faithfulness. Why would Paul place a burden, for example, of the expectation that children are believers upon Titus in Crete, but not Timothy in Ephesus? Notice the, li- the lists don't match up here if we translate it that way in, in Titus 1.6. Because he doesn't mention a whiff of children being believers in 1 Timothy 3. Ephesus was the older of the two churches and is situated within a far more culturally refined setting. Crete was a very rough place to live. Ephesus was a little less so. You would expect the bar to be higher in Ephesus, but it turns out the bar is the same in both cities. Paul is calling from the children of elders for a pattern of obedience to their father. And then that the obedience doesn't come in such a way that the father finds himself exasperated in getting it done. So notice how he says in 1 Timothy 3, 4, he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. It's hard to know whether the dignity thing should swing up to the father or down to the kids. The kids ought to maintain their dignity as they're being uh, led or that fathers ought to maintain their dignity as they discipline. Both are serious issues. 
But if the man is a hand wringer and, and won't discipline his kids, we should be concerned because then he won't discipline the church. On the other hand, if the, if the kids are browbeaten into discipline and frustrated as the day is long with their father and the way that he disciplines, we should be concerned. So keeping his children submissive, and then it matches up, this idea of believing children or faithful children matches up in 1 Timothy 3, 4. Keeping his children submissive, faithful, submissive children. So once again, I just ask, does this fit the profile of the elders of Mount Free Church? Just as within marriage, Paul's not disqualifying a man that doesn't have children. But he's rather assuming that most do, and he's right. If you want to see how a man will lead this church, look to see how they are leading or have led their children. That's the best proving ground. Not all of our elders are fathers, but most are. And as you think about these men, you'd have to know them, but we have children ranging in age from preschool to children who have preschoolers of their own. And you'd have to look through the years from my daughter Mia all the way to Wayne's Melanie, probably, right? To see the behavior of the children that the elders have sought to lead. Do you see faithfulness in the children of elders in this church? Do they honor their father? An elder's got to be above reproach in his family relationships, a one-woman man and an effective shepherd of his children. Don't, don't give a man this responsibility at the end of the day if it's not happening at home. It's the quickest way to frustrate and hurt him, ultimately. Secondly, an elder must be above reproach in his church relationships, not just family relationships, but church relationships. Now, there's three bullets here, and I'm going to cycle through these pretty quickly. I'm just going to give you the three aspects up front, and we'll unpack each real briefly. An elder ought to be an example to the flock, respected by the flock, and hospitable toward the flock. We'll take each in turn. First, an example to the flock. This is the one that's drawn from 1 Peter 5.3. An example to the flock. This comes verbatim from 1 Peter 5.3. Elders are commanded to be examples to the flock. The most powerful form of persuasion any Christian has is their personal example. The Apostle Paul knew it, and he spoke of it often. 1 Corinthians 4.16, he says, I urge you, be imitators of me. 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, he says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ, qualifies it there. In so far as I follow Jesus, follow me. Philippians 3.17, we read, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. And then in the pastoral epistles that we've been studying, uh, to Timothy, Paul writes in 1 Timothy 4.12, Let no one despise you for your youth. Rather, set the believers an example. And then in Titus 2.7, he says to this leader, show yourself in all respects to be a model. So exemplary. But there's a, there's a two-sided coin to this. Elders must set the example. But you know that an example is influential when they are respected. This is the second aspect of church relationships. Respected by the flock. If you want to know whether a man is a good example to the flock, you would have to ask the question, is he respected by the flock? 
And again, don't put him in this situation as an elder and then figure it out whether or not you respect him. He ought to become an elder on the basis of the respect that you have for him and not the other way around. Once a man is an elder, his office wields authority and he will influence, for better or for worse. One author writes, an elder will receive the benefit of the doubt against uncorroborated allegations of wrongdoing. 1 Timothy 5, 19. Few things are worse for a church than having a man who lacks good character be able to set a bad example while also being shielded by the generosity of judgment which comes with the office. I'm going to say that again because I think it's very well said. Few things are worse for our church than having a man who lacks good character be able to set a bad example while being shielded by the generosity of judgment that goes with the office. That's what 1 Timothy 5.19 is all about. I hope you feel the problem there. Congregations are put in an impossible situation when their elders are not exemplary or they're not respected to begin with. So we need to raise this issue. And here's one way I think we can get at the application of it. In order for men to be examples to the flock and respected by the flock, they must be men who are known to the flock. Can you name the six current elders at Mount Free Church? I'm not asking you to respond necessarily, but just in your own mind. And you can't peek at the bulletin. If you don't know, and we would give any visitor here a hall pass on this one, but if you've been around here for a while and you don't know, why don't you know? who the shepherds of this church are. Elders must know and be known by the flock. And that's why the Bible stirs in this final aspect of church relationships, hospitable toward the flock. Hospitable toward the flock. Once in 1 Timothy 3.2, once again in Titus 1.8, we read that elders must be hospitable. Now, on one level, this ought not to surprise us. This is the teaching of the Bible. Romans 12, 13, Hebrews 13, 2, 1 Peter 4, 9, 3 John 5 to 10. All command all believers everywhere to be hospitable people. This one is for everybody. By now, we ought to remember that these elder qualifications are not all that remarkable. Unless they are remarkable for being unremarkable, then they're remarkable. This is average, not a big ask, All Christians are expected to be hospitable. With this command for elders, then, what's being said is that the elder ought to set the pace for hospitality. If everyone in this church used their, for example, their home for hospitality as much as our current elders do, how would that go for us? How much would be happening? Who's setting the pace here? When we open our homes to one another, for example, we're opening our lives to one another. We saw this as we looked through our house rules, had that study about the one another's of the church a couple years ago. When we open our homes to one another, we're, we're opening our lives to one another. This is why this is so crucial. So in order for elders to set an example to the flock, they must be respected by the flock. Therefore, they must be known by the flock, so they should be hospitable toward the flock. Do you know what the living rooms look like of each of the men who serve as elders in this church? If not, why not? 
elders, do the people of our church know what your living rooms look like? If not, why not? Have you made it a point to use your home for hospitality? Now, home is, I think, the central way to show hospitality. I think that's largely what the New Testament is is aiming for here, but it's not the only way. Hospitality, I mean, there are people that just want to show off their homes that don't have instincts for caring for people, so I want to guard against that. Um, But hospitality is a disposition. It's a tone that we live with. We show we're hospitable when we are open and free with our possessions, for example. Do our elders live that way? This would include our home, but it's not limited to it. Elders ought to share food, books, gifts, financial resources. Elders ought to be here early on Sunday morning. They ought to be the unofficial greeters every Sunday. Just making their way around the room through Fellowship Hall, making sure that visitors know where they're going, where the nursery is, where the bathrooms are. This is... This is the place we do hospitality as well. They should come early. They should stay late into the afternoon and chat in fellowship hall and pray with people. So elders must be above reproach in church relationships. That would be examples to the flock, respected by the flock, hospitable toward the flock. And I'll just float this out there and ask, is that the reality of things? Elders, if you serve as an elder, is that you? If you know who our elders are, are you aware of whether or not this is true of them. Lastly, an elder must be above reproach, number three, in his community relationships. An elder must be above reproach in his community relationships. First Timothy 3, 7. One qualification, one final qualification for eldership. Moreover, he must, lots of musts here, not optional, must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Some wonder at Paul's logic here, but as I've pondered this, I just realized he could not be more on point with this. Why would God's word instruct the church not to admit a man to the eldership who didn't carry with him a clear endorsement from unbelievers? Those are the last blanks. A clear endorsement from unbelievers. It seems backwards, doesn't it? A little bit. That's what the word outsiders means in verse 7. Outsider was Paul's term for non-Christians. He uses it four times in the New Testament. Outsider. Why does he say that elders ought to come with a clear endorsement from unbelievers? You know why he does this? Because despite their perilous spiritual state the one thing that unbelievers seem to be very, very sharp at is sniffing out hypocrisy, right? This is a strength. It was a strength of mine when I was an unbeliever. Especially in church leaders, I could spot it. You want to know whether Dave Brickley or Wayne Huben ought to be serving our church as elders? Talk to their former associates in their workplace as they are retired now. See what the word on the street is about them. You wonder if Tim Preble or Greg Walters or Randy Johnson are elder material? Here's a litmus test, and you men need to consider this. 
Would your colleagues at work be surprised to hear that you currently serve as an elder in your local church? Would that just blow them away? Or would they rather think, oh, that fits. That fits him. Yeah, I didn't I did know that, but that makes perfect sense. He does that on his weekends? Yeah, that fits him. Yeah. Folks shouldn't be surprised about that. It should fit their categories of you perfectly. And if you want to know if I'm fit to be an elder, I'd invite you to walk up and down our half of Edgewater Drive and just knock on doors, just ask neighbors. See what kind of a neighbor I am. That's where you'll get the answer to this. An elder must be engaged with unbelievers. Not only engaged with unbelievers, but carrying the clear, ringing endorsement of unbelievers. That there's nothing uh, as a blot on a man's life that even an unbeliever would point to and say that they're not fit for church leadership. So while an elder may never be without his critics, it's essential that he be without reproach. Above reproach is the way that Paul talks about it. Above reproach in family relationships, church relationships, community relationships. One woman man, effective shepherd of his children, example to the flock, respected by the flock, hospitable toward the flock. And then finally, with regard to community relationships, the clear endorsement of unbelievers. Once again, we get to the end of a sermon and we think, just who is sufficient for these things? Who is competent or equal to the task of eldership? And the answer, quite frankly, is no one. Apart from the grace of God in Jesus Christ. But Philippians 4.13 says that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. 1 Peter 5, 4 says that Jesus is our chief shepherd, the true senior pastor of this fellowship. And the chief shepherd laid down his life for the sheep, and that would include the under-shepherds who were sheep themselves. As Paul said to the elders in Acts 20, 32, we should afresh commend our elders to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build them up and give them an inheritance among all who are sanctified.